As I was preparing this message, playing on the radio behind me was a program I was listening to in the background about the miraculous nature of the survival of the state of Israel. When you look back over the last 60-some years, it really is miraculous that Israel still exists. And I, I don't use that term lightly and just throw it around. It is miraculous that Israel is a nation today. In May of 1948, the British withdrew from Palestine. On May 14, 1948, Israel declared her independence and statehood. On the same day, five Arab armies invaded the state of Israel to destroy her in the womb. That precipitated the War of Independence... And amazingly, when all the dust settled, Israel had gained more territory than she would have received in the United Nations Partition Plan developed in November of 1947. Then in June of 1967, there was a six-day war, the six-day war with Egypt, Syria, and Jordan. Just a few weeks ago, I finished the sort of the quintessential book uh, on that war. Uh, Israel conquered Sinai again, including Gaza, Golan Heights, and the West Bank. Then in October of 1973, Israel fought the Yom Kippur War. It came about due to a surprise attack in Sinai by Egypt and in the Golan Heights by Syria. Israel was completely unprepared, shockingly, and for a while her existence was hanging in the balance. In fact, Military strategists say that Israel very easily could have, should have lost that war had her enemies pressed the point and done what they could have done. Still today, it is the stated intention of many of Israel's neighbors to push her into the Mediterranean Sea and eliminate her existence. Yet Israel still remains. And she will continue to remain because God has future plans for that tiny but extremely significant nation. We are told this time and time again in the pages of predictive prophecy, and we come to another example in the passage we're going to consider together. So turn with me, if you're not already there, to the book of Revelation chapter 12. Revelation chapter 12, and since this whole chapter is really a unit, I'm going to read it in its entirety. It's not really very long. So follow along as I begin reading in verse 1. Now a great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a garland of twelve stars. Then being with child, she cried out in labor and in pain to give birth. And another sign appeared in heaven, behold, a great fiery red dragon having seven heads and ten horns and seven diadems on his heads. His tail drew a third of the stars of heaven and threw them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was ready to give birth to devour her child as soon as it was born. She bore a male child who was to rule all nations with a rod of iron. And her child was caught up to God in his throne. Then the woman fled into the wilderness where she has a place prepared by God that they should feed her there 1,260 days. And war broke out in heaven. Michael and his angels fought with the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought. But they did not prevail, nor was a place found for them in heaven any longer. 
So the great dragon was cast out, that serpent of old called the devil and Satan, who deceives the whole world. He was cast to the earth, and his angels were cast out with him. Then I heard a loud voice saying in heaven, Now salvation and strength and the kingdom of our God and the power of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brethren who accused them before our God day and night has been cast down. And they overcame him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony, and they did not love their lives to the death. Therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. Woe to the inhabitants of the earth and the sea, for the devil has come down to you having great wrath because he knows that he has a short time. Now when the dragon saw he had been cast to the earth, he persecuted the woman who gave birth to the male child. But the woman was given two wings of a great eagle that she might fly into the wilderness to her place where she is nourished for a time and times and half a time from the presence of the serpent. So the serpent spewed water out of his mouth like a flood after the woman that he might cause her to be carried away by the flood. But the earth helped the woman, and the earth opened its mouth and swallowed up the flood with which the dragon had spewed out of his mouth. And the dragon was enraged with the woman. And he went to make war with the rest of her offspring who keep the commandments of God and have the testimony of Jesus Christ. For a couple messages now, we have been meditating on this pivotal chapter of the book of Revelation. It pictures for us important truth about the past and the future in graphic symbolism. This is why the book of Revelation is known as apocalyptic literature, because it speaks truth primarily about the future by using strange symbols and visions and so forth. John opens the chapter by describing a great sign he saw in heaven. A woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a garland of twelve stars. We've already seen that this particular woman represents Israel. The fact that she was clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, depicts Israel as a royal nation. And she is that because she has been chosen by God to be such. God has been pleased to give us the Scripture through the Jewish people, and the Messiah through the Jewish people. The garland of twelve stars is an obvious portrayal of the twelve tribes of Israel. John saw another sign in heaven, a great fiery red dragon. There's no question that this is a reference to Satan. Verse 9 removes all doubt where it says, So the great dragon was cast out, that serpent of old called the devil and Satan. In the early verses of the chapter, we saw how this great dragon, Satan, tried to devour and destroy the child that was born of the woman. The child, of course, is none other than the Lord Jesus Christ himself. Verse 5 makes that clear when it says this child was to rule all nations with a rod of iron. Verse 6 tells us that this woman fled into the wilderness, wilderness to be protected and cared for 1,260 days. That's 12 and a half years. Why does the woman do that? Verses 7 through 12, which we looked at in our last study in this series, partially answer that question. The woman Israel would need to be protected for three and a half years because at the midpoint of the seven-year tribulation period, Michael and his angels are going to throw Satan and his angels out of the heavenly realm, and they will no longer have access to the heavenlies. 
That means Satan will hit this earth with all of his fury and he will be forced to limit his destructive work to the earthly realm. That's why verse 12 says, Rejoice, O heavens, but woe to the inhabitants of the earth. Satan will know that his time is short, so he will do everything he can to wreak havoc on this earth, and he will focus much of his venomous hatred on Israel. Israel is still in existence today, but because she still hasn't embraced her Messiah, the Lord Jesus, she is going to go through a time of immense suffering. There's no question that the Jewish people have suffered down through the centuries. But their worst suffering is yet to come. However, God has made it abundantly clear that he will not allow them to be annihilated. That's what John elaborates on in the last five verses of this chapter, the five verses that we have yet to consider and will do so in this message. But before we jump into these verses, let's go back to Romans chapter 11 to remind ourselves of what the Apostle Paul teaches in that section of Romans. Romans chapter 11, and I want to spend some ex- extensive time here because it will give us important background for this passage in Revelation. In fact, once we have a, a handle on what Paul teaches here in Romans 11, then Revelation 12 will make much more sense and will not be nearly as difficult to explain or, or grapple with. Romans chapter 11, beginning in verse 25. Paul says, For I do not desire, brethren, that you should be ignorant of this mystery, lest you should be wise in your own opinion, that blindness, in part, has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And so, all Israel will be saved, as it is written, the Deliverer will come out of Zion, and he will turn away ungodliness from Jacob. For this is my covenant with them when I take away their sins." Concerning the gospel, they are enemies for your sake. But concerning the election, they are beloved for the sake of the fathers. For the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. As you can see from reading through these few verses, Paul believed and Paul taught that there is coming a day in which Israel will be saved and restored to her position of privilege and blessing on planet earth. For now, Israel has been judicially blinded and hardened because of their stubbornness and because of their unbelief. That's what Paul says in verses 7 through 10 of this chapter. So the question that naturally comes to mind is this. How long will Israel's hardening last? How long will Israel be in this spiritual condition as a whole? Verse 25 answers the question. It says, I do not desire, brethren, that you should be ignorant of this mystery, lest you should be wise in your own opinion, that blindness, in part, has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. Paul begins by using his common phrase, for I do not desire, brethren, that you should be ignorant. Whenever Paul used that phrase, it was his way of drawing attention to the importance of what he is saying. So the fact that he uses it here tells us that it is very important for us to understand these verses. Sadly, many Christians do not understand these verses. 
because many Christians believe that God is completely done with the nation of Israel. They believe that because Israel rejected her Messiah when Jesus came the first time, God is done. He's finished. He's washed his hands of the nation of Israel. They believe that Israel has no place in the future plan of God. Some even teach that the church has become Israel. This theology is becoming more and more popular in Christianity. It is technically known as replacement theology. Beloved, hear me when I say there is absolutely no way you can understand these verses here in Romans 11 and many other passages in Scripture if you believe the church has become Israel. Because all the way through this chapter, Paul says, under the inspiration of the Spirit, that Israel is under judicial, judicial hardness and hardening and blindness as a result of their refusal to believe the gospel. In light of that fact, how can anyone say the church is Israel? The church is made up of those who have believed the gospel. Israel has not believed the gospel. And that's what Paul is discussing here in this 11th chapter of Romans. John Murray, a very scholarly, brilliant, amillennialist, which is someone who doesn't believe in a future kingdom for Israel, said it this way. Now listen closely. This is a, an amillennialist, a very godly, scholarly amillennialist. Quote, It should be apparent from the proximate and less proximate context in this portion of the epistle that it is exegetically impossible to give to Israel in this verse any other denotation than that which belongs to the term throughout this chapter. There is the sustained contrast between Israel and the Gentiles as has been demonstrated in the exposition preceding. What other denotation could be given to Israel in the preceding verse? It is of ethnic Israel Paul is speaking, and Israel could not possibly include Gentiles. In that event, the preceding verse would be reduced to absurdity, end quote. He is absolutely right. And God bless him for his intellectual honesty, even though his theological position on the millennium is wrong. Paul is talking about ethnic Israel in these verses and God's plan for ethnic Israel in the future. Now, some people try to get around that by pointing back to chapter 9, verse 6, and saying, well, Paul is simply referring to the elect within Israel, or the true Israel, not ethnic Israel. Again, quoting from Murray, he says that interpretation, quote, is not tenable for several reasons. One, while it is true that all the elect of Israel, the true Israel, will be saved, this is so necessary and patent a truth that to assert the same here would have no particular relevance to what is the apostle's governing interest in this section of the epistle. Two, the salvation of all the elect of Israel affirms or implies no more than a, than a salvation of a remnant of Israel in all generations. But in verse 26, Paul brings his teaching to a climax in a sustained argument that goes far beyond that doctrine. Thirdly, verse 26 is in close sequence with verse 25. The main thesis of verse 25 is that the hardening of Israel is to terminate and that Israel is to be restored. In a word, now listen to his statement. In a word, it is the salvation of the mass of Israel that the apostle affirms. 
End quote. Again, God bless him for his intellectual honesty of what Paul is saying here, even though he cannot, he could not get to the position of believing in a millennial kingdom for Israel. The point is this. Paul is talking about national, ethnic Israel being restored to a position of blessing and privilege after they have been brought to repentance and faith. And because Paul wants us to understand what he is teaching, he gets our attention with the phrase, I do not desire, brethren, that you should be ignorant of this mystery. I want you to know this. I don't want you to get this wrong, is what Paul is saying. By the way, the word mystery here in this verse does not refer to something that's hard to understand or baffling. It refers to something that was not revealed in the Old Testament, but has now been revealed in the New Testament. That's the New Testament definition of the word mystery, which is used 27 times in the New Testament. And what Paul is referring to specifically here in Romans 11 is how long Israel's hardening will last. How long will Israel be under judicial blindness and hardness of heart? God had not chosen to reveal the length of Israel's hardening in Hebrew Scripture, but here in verse 25, the Holy Spirit reveals the fact. He says Israel will remain hardened to the truth of the gospel. Here's how long. Until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. In other words, Israel will be in a state of spiritual hardness until the last Gentile in the church age has been brought to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And of course, that's exactly what the Lord is doing now. That's what God is doing. His focus is not on the Jewish people as a whole today. During this present age, it is a fact that some individual Jews are being saved in the country of Israel and elsewhere around the world. And in these chapters, Paul has been referring to them as a remnant. That's why he says Israel's hardening is in part, not in total, it's in part. Some individual Jews are being saved today, in this day and age. But for the most part, this is primarily a time when God is saving Gentiles and building his church with Gentiles. So Israel's hardened spiritual condition will continue until the very last Gentile has been saved that God has purposed to save. Then, during the seven-year tribulation period, God will again focus his program on the people of Israel to bring them to repentance and to restore them to their place of blessing. Israel has not been in that place of blessing for hundreds and hundreds of years now. Not at all. The people of Israel are not at the center of God's saving program right now. Understand that, beloved. The people of Israel are not at the center. I'm not saying God's not saving Jewish people. But the people of Israel are not at the center of God's saving program right now because the fullness of the Gentiles has not yet come in. And the capital city of Israel, which is Jerusalem, does not occupy the place of prominence that it will one day have under Messiah Jesus, because right now it is under the times of the Gentiles. But once the fullness of the Gentiles has come in, that is, once God has saved all the Gentiles he has purposed to save, God will turn back to Israel to begin ending the times of the Gentiles. Both of those phrases are used in the New Testament, fullness of the Gentiles and times of the Gentiles. They overlap, but they are not identical. 
So God will someday turn back to Israel to begin ending the times of the Gentiles. But Satan will try with everything he has to thwart God's plan. According to our text in Revelation 12, during the tribulation period, Satan will attempt to destroy Israel. Zechariah 13.8 indicates that two-thirds of the Jewish population will die during this time. In Matthew 24.21, Jesus said, For then shall be great tribulation, such as was not since the beginning of the world to this time, no, nor ever shall be. There will be satanic persecution, natural catastrophes, unprecedented demonic activity, and much of it will be directed right at the people of Israel. That's why Jeremiah 30, verse 7 says, It will be a time of Jacob's trouble, and you know that another name for Jacob is Israel. But God will preserve the nation to save them. In Zechariah 13, 9, God says, And I will bring the third part through the fire, and will refine them as silver is refined, and will test them as gold is tested. They shall call on my name. I will hear them. I will say, It is my people. And they will say, The Lord, or Yahweh, is my God. God will use the intense suffering of Israel to bring the people to repentance. So Paul says here in Romans 11, verse 26, And so all Israel will be saved. As it is written, the deliverer will come out of Zion and he will turn away ungodliness from Jacob. The first phrase of this verse, all Israel will be saved, doesn't mean that every Jew who has ever lived will be saved. It is referring to the Jews who are alive when Jesus returns. F.F. Bruce put it this way, quote, all Israel is a recurring expression in Jewish literature where it need not mean every Jew without, sin, without a single exception, but Israel as a whole, end quote. Now, we understand this kind of expression. For example, Matthew 3, 5 says about the ministry of John the Baptist, Then Jerusalem, all Judea, and all the region around the Jordan went out to him. I don't know anyone that would say, well, that means every single person in J Jerusalem, Judea, and the region around the Jordan went to see John the Baptist. Every single person living in that whole region. No, it means there was this mass exodus of people to go see John the Baptist. It means a huge majority, a large percentage. In a similar way, when Paul says all Israel will be saved, we have to understand the expression the way the Jewish people commonly used it. Paul was Jewish, writing about the Jewish people. We have to understand it in that way to refer to Israel as a whole. So the point is this, God will use the suffering of the tribulation period to bring the people of Israel to repentance. Listen to this frightening description of the event. I'll read it to you out of Ezekiel chapter 20. Listen to what God has to say about what he's going to do at that time for and in the lives of the Jewish people. Ezekiel chapter 20, verse 33. As I live, says the Lord God, surely with a mighty hand, with an outstretched arm, and with fury poured out, I will rule over you. I will bring you out from the peoples and gather you out of the countries where you are scattered with a mighty hand, with an outstretched arm, and with fury poured out. And I will bring you into the wilderness of the peoples, and there I will plead my case with you face to face, just as I pleaded my case with your fathers in the wilderness of the land of Egypt, so I will plead my 
case with you, says the Lord God. I will make you pass under the rod, and I will bring you into the bond of the covenant. I will purge the rebels from among you, and those who transgress against me. I will bring them out of the country where they dwell, but they shall not enter the land of Israel. Then you will know that I am the Lord. That is hair-raising language when you hear God speak that way. Twice in the text, I, with fury poured out, I will rule over you. He is going to purge out the rebels and then save all of Israel. In Zechariah 12.10, God said, And I will pour on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and supplication. Then they will look on me whom they have pierced. They will mourn for him as one mourns for his only son and grieve for him as one grieves for a firstborn. Israel's hardening will be broken and their blindness will be removed. But it will involve immense suffering to get them to that point. The Lord Jesus is going to turn away ungodliness from Jacob. Notice here in Romans 11 that twice in verse 26, depending on your translation, twice the word will occurs. This will happen. It is certain because it isn't really dependent on the will of the people of Israel. It is dependent on God's will. He will bring them to repentance. He will take away their sins. Why is God going to do this? I'll tell you why. Simply because he said he would. So Paul says in verse 27 of Romans 11, For this is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. God is going to do these things because it's part of the covenant he made with Israel. Isaiah 59 refers to this covenant. So does Jeremiah 31. In fact, go back with me to Jeremiah chapter 31 for just a few verses there. Right after the book of Isaiah is Jeremiah chapter 31, verse 31. It's easy to remember the location of the new covenant in Hebrew scripture if you can just remember it's Jeremiah because it's 3131. Same chapter, same verse. This is where God begins to describe it. Jeremiah 31, 31. Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day that I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant which they broke, though I was a husband to them, says the Lord. The first thing to notice about this covenant is how specific God is concerning of whom he is speaking. He is talking about the house of Israel and the house of Judah. He's talking about the people he brought out of the land of Egypt. He's talking about the Jewish people, not the church. And what is God going to do with these people? Verse 33, but this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. No more shall every man teach his neighbor and every man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest of them, says the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and their sin I will remember no more. Obviously, this hasn't happened yet. Are we living in a time when it's no longer necessary to tell people about the Lord? Obviously not. But there is coming a day in which God will so thoroughly redeem Israel that it will no longer be necessary to evangelize any Jewish people. God says they'll all know me, from the least of them to the greatest of them. 
So now you, you can see why Paul says there in Romans 11, all Israel will be saved. Isaiah 11.9 says, For the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. The Lord's going to lift Israel's blindness to fulfill the word of his covenant. Now back to, to Romans 11 before we skip over to Revelation 12. God will fulfill his covenant because God's integrity and trustworthiness are the issue. God is not going to do these things for the people of Israel because they deserve it. They don't deserve it. Any more than you or I deserve God's salvation. But God is going to fulfill his covenant because he said he would. In fact, to make the point even further, this is really shocking. Paul admits that at the time he wrote the book of Romans, the Jewish people were enemies of the gospel. Look at his wording. 11.28, Romans 11.28, concerning the gospel, they are enemies for your sake. But concerning the election, they are beloved for the sake of the fathers. If you know the book of Acts, then you know that the first part of this verse really needs no explanation because it was almost always the Jewish people who were the enemies of the gospel. They were the ones who opposed the gospel, opposed Paul, got him in trouble, traced, chased him around, tracked him down. So the question comes, then why in the world does God say he's going to restore them to their place of privilege and blessing? The answer is the last phrase in verse 28, where it says, for the sake of the fathers. In spite of the fact that the Jewish people have been the enemies of the gospel, God will break their hardness of heart because of God's promise to their fathers. Israel remains the elect nation, not because they deserve that position, but rather because of the promises God made to Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, David, Isaiah, Jeremiah, etc. And still today, beloved, understand this. Most people here in this room have a great love for Israel. But still today, Israel is an enemy of the gospel. The, the, the things done by the state of Israel to Jewish converts, the, the, the uh, opposition the persecution that Jewish people in Israel face when they come to believe in Jesus as the Messiah. Make no mistake about it. Today, Israel as a whole is an enemy of the gospel. But they are still beloved of God. You say, I don't understand that. Neither do I. And neither do I understand how God could love us when we were his enemies. But that's what Romans 5 says. God promised the Jewish patriarchs and fathers that he would make them a blessed nation. God's covenant with Abraham was unconditional, and many of God's promises to the fathers were unconditional. They are not based on Israel's worthiness. They are based on God's trustworthy character and grace. God called Israel into existence, and he bestowed on them numerous gifts, so it is certain that God will fulfill his promises. Verse 29 closes out this little paragraph by saying, For the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. God cannot and will not go back on his commitment to Israel any more than he would go back on his commitment to us as his people. When God chose Israel, he became committed to saving them and blessing them and bringing them to repentance and restoring them. That's why he called them. That's why he graciously gave them so many gifts. And verse 29 says, The gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. Literally, it reads this way, even stronger. For not repented of are the grace, gifts, and the calling of God. Not repented of. God has never repented concerning his choice of Israel. 
He is just as committed to fulfilling his purposes with them as he has ever been. That commitment is what's behind our text in Revelation 12. Let's go back there and spend a few minutes wrapping up that chapter, Revelation chapter 12. In verse 13, John says, Now when the dragon saw that he had been cast to the earth, he persecuted the woman who gave birth to the male child. The dragon, as we've already seen, is Satan, and the woman who gave birth to the child is Israel. When Satan is thrown out of the heavens and barred from access to there, as verses 7 through 12 describe, as we saw in the last message in this series, he is going to vent all his fury on Israel. Verse 14, But the woman was given two wings of a great eagle, that she might fly into the wilderness to her place, where she is nourished for a time and times and half a time from the presence of the serpent. How long is that? It's three and a half years. We've seen this Many, many times. God is going to supernaturally protect Israel for the final three and a half years of the tribulation. And that time period is sometimes called the Great Tribulation. During the first three and a half years, Israel will dwell in safety because the Antichrist will sign some kind of seven-year treaty or agreement or covenant with the nation. But at the midpoint, he will break that treaty and then he will seek to annihilate the people of Israel. But that won't happen. Because this verse describes supernatural protection. It says the woman will be given two wings of a great eagle that she might fly into the wilderness. The picture of wings is used throughout Hebrew scripture to symbolize God's protection and deliverance. For example, in Exodus 19.4, God said, You have seen what I did unto the Egyptians and how I carried you on eagles' wings and brought you unto myself. That refers to God's empowering them to be able to leave Egypt. And in the tribulation, God will empower Israel to flee into the wilderness. There Israel will be nourished. How? We don't know. We don't know for sure. But maybe God will provide them with manna and quail again like he did under Moses. In Matthew 24, Jesus warned the Jews to flee immediately when they see the abomination of desolation. Where will Israel go? Well, I don't want to tell you out loud and give away their secret. No, I I don't know. I don't know where they'll go. Specifically, how will she escape? I don't know. All I know is that she will somehow be supernaturally aided to be protected from the serpent. But Satan won't give up. Verse 15, So the serpent spewed water out of his mouth like a flood after the woman that he might cause her to be carried away by the flood. What is this? I don't know. I just asked the questions around here. I don't know. God is is using symbolic language throughout this chapter, so I can't tell specifically how Satan is going to spew water out of his mouth. But I do know that it means that Satan is going to be tenacious in his attempts to destroy Israel. Verse 16 says, But the earth helped the woman, and the earth opened its mouth and swallowed up the flood which the dragon had spewed out of his mouth. This flood could be a flood of water, or it could be armies flowing like a river, as in the figure of speech used by Isaiah in chapter 8, verses 7 and 8 of his book. Whatever it is that Satan spews at Israel, whether it's a flood of water or a rushing army, it is going to be engulfed by the earth, 
The earth will open up and swallow the threat. And this will infuriate Satan even further. Verse 17 says, And the dragon was enraged with the woman. And he went to make war with the rest of her offspring who keep the commandments of God and have the testimony of Jesus Christ. Satan was already angry because he couldn't kill Christ back in verse 4. And he became even more angry when he was thrown out of heaven in verse 9. Now that he can't get to this group of Jewish people, he will be furious. So he will go to make war with the rest of her offspring. That could be a reference to Gentile believers of the tribulation period. Very likely that's the case. Or it could refer to the 144,000 special Jewish missionaries that uh, are spoken of back in chapter 7. Or it could refer to Jews who will not be in Israel when the persecution breaks out, will be elsewhere around the world, and don't have to flee into the wilderness immediately. I don't know how all the particulars of God's work with Israel are going to fit together, but I do know this. It is abundantly clear in Scripture that God has a future plan for Israel. He is going to keep that nation from being annihilated. And He is going to use the tribulation period to bring the Jewish people to repentance, to saving faith in Jesus their Messiah. Beloved, when we see God's unconditional love for Israel, His faithfulness to His Word, His commitment to them in spite of their sinfulness, that ought to be a great encouragement to us. After all, we aren't any better than they are. We aren't saved today and in the place of blessing because we are better than the Jewish people. We're just as sinful as they are, just as stubborn, just as stiff-necked. So when we see God's unconditional love for Israel, His faithfulness to the promises He made them, and His commitment to them in spite of their sinfulness. That ought to be a great encouragement to us because the same thing applies to us. God loves us unconditionally. He has given us exceeding great and precious promises, and He is committed to us in spite of our failures, in spite of our weaknesses, in spite of our sinfulness. Doesn't that encourage you? It does me. The more I grow, the more I see the sinfulness of my wretched human heart. And the more I see my sinfulness, the more it means to me when I read in the Word of God that God has an unconditional love for me as His child and a commitment to me as His child. What a great God we have. Rather than being prideful, we Gentile Christians should be humble by the mercy God has shown us. We ought to be overwhelmed with gratitude and amazed when we see how loyal and allegiant God is to us, just as He is to Israel. Let's thank Him for that as we close. Father, as we contemplate Your dealings with the people of Israel, we see Your commitment to them, your devotion, the promises you made, promises that you have not ever repented of, promises that you've never, uh, that you've never regretted giving to them. And we see, it's so easy for us to see in their case how undeserving they are, 
But it's not as easy for us to see that in our own selves, how undeserving we are. So may we see in the way you work with Israel a mirror in the way you work with us. May we see it as a reflection of your love for us, your commitment to us, your faithfulness, though we are utterly unworthy. And may that encourage our hearts. And rather than having any pride in our hearts, may we as Gentile believers, those who are part of the church, may we be humbled by the mercy you have shown us, overwhelmed with gratitude, in awe, amazed. And Father, as we contemplate that, we thank you for your commitment to your people Israel. We do know, because their prophets said this, we're not casting aspersions on them, their own prophets have said they are a rebellious, stubborn, stiff-necked people, and indeed they are. They, so many of them have heard the gospel over and over and over again, and they refuse to acknowledge Jesus as the Messiah. And so we see from your word what awaits Israel. We see the immense suffering that it will take to finally bring Israel to repentance, finally remove their, their blindness and soften their hardness, hardness of heart. In the meantime, until that time comes, whenever it may be, May we love the Jewish people. May we love Gentile people. And may we have have a burden for all people to see them come to know your son Jesus and come to receive his salvation and come to, as Paul said to the Thessalonians, in Jesus we escape the wrath to come. Thank you for your mercy to us. Thank you for the certainty of your plan. You will carry it out. You will fulfill your word. And we are amazed as we contemplate it. So we pray these things in the precious, priceless, matchless name of your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the Messiah, and one day will be seen as the Messiah, even by Israel. We pray these things in his name. Amen.